Welcome to the weekly podcast from Harvest Ridge Church in North Ridgeville, Ohio. Our heart's desire is that you would grow in your love and devotion to Jesus Christ and that these messages will strengthen your daily walk. For more information about our church, visit us on the web at www.harvestridge.net. So, um, my, my wife, I asked her about these jokes and she told me this one was okay. Uh, said midwives deserve a lot of respect. I hear they really help people out. <laughs> the reason I wanted to tell that one is we have a new member of Harvest Ridge, uh, Pastor Caleb and Brandy. On Friday, they added to their family little Felicity Fletcher. So we have a new one. So yay. <laughs> new member of our staff. Yeah. Uh, all of our kids Pastoral staff, absolutely. Um, what do you call a woman who sets fire to all her bills? Bernadette. Yeah. All right, would you stand to your feet in honor of God's word? You should have found that in your Bible yet. I encourage you this morning for you to find Isaiah 40 in your Bible and you to follow along. The, really, uh, the, the, the scripture is what we're here for, and I would like you, if you see something that just grabs your attention or your heart, underline it, take a few moments, and, and spend some time with the scriptures after this moment, not just in this moment, all right? Can you all read this, uh, this verse with me together? It's pretty simple. I think we can pull this off. What do you think? Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. That's pretty simple, right? Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Can you all read it with me one more time? All right. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Father, I pray that today you would add your blessing to your word. Let our hearts be open. Let us hear what you would say to us. Give me the ability to communicate it appropriately in the name of Jesus. I pray it. Amen. Hey, before you're seated. Turn to somebody, give them a big smile. Just make them know that you're happy to see them. The eyes speak over the mask. Give them a big smile. All right, thanks. All right, so, all right. There are a couple ways I could approach this. Part of me wants to smooth this out and not bring it up, but then there's part of me that says my job is to teach you the Bible. So I'm going to teach you from the scriptures right now a little something that you probably should know. Isaiah has two divisions. The first division is division chapter 1, verse 39. And 1, verse 39, the setting is the people in Israel. The setting is the people in Israel. So they're living in Israel, and they're under attack from outside, and God does miracles against the Assyrians, which is all the way back in the 700s, uh, 700 B.C. And so the setting is the children of God in Israel, and they're under attack, and, and the call is to repentance and to be loyal and faithful to God. And then second Isaiah starts in Isaiah chapter 40, and it goes through the end of the book, and the setting there is Isaiah 40 through the end of the book is um, the setting is the children of Israel already in Babylonian captivity. You see, in 721 BC, the Assyrians conquered and took captive the northern tribes of Israel. And the, the first part of the book was written in that setting back when they were wrestling with the Assyrians. And in 587 BC, the Babylonians conquered and took into captivity Judah. Now, the, the setting of, of the second part of the book, or second Isaiah as it's called, Isaiah 40 through 66, is written to a people who are in Babylonian captivity. They've been exiled. They've been taken from their homeland. They've been conquered. They've been overrun. They've been reduced to slavery. They've been mocked. They've been made fun of. And this is the bad time in their world. Okay? 
Now, you need to know that because they were probably not written by the same people, being in two different settings 150 to 200 years later. But they're still a part of the book we call Isaiah, and they're still under the, uh, the prophetic writings of the Old Testament. So, it's still God talking, it's just in a different setting. And this is key to understand because the first 39 chapters is, is God wrestling with the children of Israel saying, you need to repent because you've turned from false God, from God, me to false gods. The second setting of the book is in Babylonian captivity where he's saying to them, I'm calling you back to right relationship with me. You see, the first setting, there are some things that were said by God while they were going through this turning away from him. Isaiah, uh, Hosea chapter one, verse nine, which was a contemporary of the first part of the book says this, the Lord said, you are not my people. So what happens is, all right, y'all ready for this? Yeah, I don't think you are. The children of Israel were saying to God, we don't like you. We don't want to serve you. Go away from us and leave us alone. And the Babylonian captivity was God saying, okay, that's what you want. You can have it. You see, here's what happened. They told God to go away. We don't want to serve you. We don't want to serve you only. We don't want to be loyal to you. We don't want to do what you say. And we don't want to listen to you. We'll do what we doggone well want to whenever and however we want to. And God says, okay, have your own way. And what happened is they entered into captivity. They lost their homes. They lost their identity. They lost their lives. They lost so much. They were taken out of their land. They were conquered. They were overrun. They were made slaves in a land that wasn't theirs. These people had a rough time because when you tell God, go away and leave me alone, and God says, okay, then things are really going to get rough. As a person that's done that, I will tell you it's not a good time to say to God, go away. I'll do what I want to do because things get really bad. What happens is, remember, they told God, go away. And God said, okay, then you're not my people. And then in Lamentations, the, the book that's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, uh, in chapter 1, verse 2, it says, there's no one to comfort her. Lamentations 1, 9, there's no one to comfort. Lamentations 1, 17, there's no one to comfort. Lamentations 1, 21, the people have heard my groaning. But there's no one to comfort me. And what's going on here is in the Babylonian captivity, in the time of their destruction, there was no comfort. And God was saying, you're not my people. Back off. Then in Isaiah chapter 40, all the way at the end, God's seen their groaning. God's seen their, uh, their, their distress. God's heard their cry. He says, comfort, comfort my people. He rebuked both curses and turned both curses away and took them back to be his people. And where there was no one to comfort, now he brings them comfort. Because when you call out to God, I don't care how far you've told God to go away. I don't care how lost you are. I don't care how much you've done and how many times you've told him to go away. I'll do what I want to do. There comes a time when you turn your heart back to him that he will return to you and receive you to himself and give you comfort and lift you out of the mess. Thank God for that kind of God. Now, God's going to tell them through the rest of this chapter, he's going to argue with them three things. Three things he's going to argue with them is about his nature. He's going to talk about his character. He's going to declare his character to people who didn't want it for a long time. So the first thing he says to him, God's character, he's going to reveal it in Isaiah chapter 40 through the prophet. He's going to proclaim his character. He says, first of all, God is trustworthy. God is trustworthy. 
Now, God didn't want to hand Israel over to their captors. He didn't want to abandon them. He didn't want to, but they told him enough, let me go. He finally said, okay, if that's what you want, get what you want. And when they got what they want, they were like, ooh, this isn't very good. Could we please get God back? And there was one lesson learned by the, if, if you know anything about the history of Israel, there was one lesson learned by them in Babylonian captivity, and that is there is one God, and we only worship one God, and God don't goof around, and God don't mess around. We shouldn't mess around either. That's the lesson learned. Please do me a favor. If you've never hit rock bottom, learn a lesson from others who have, and turn to Christ immediately and don't wait before you get to rock bottom and the world's trashed before you look up to heaven and say, help. All right. So the first thing he reminds us is God is trustworthy. So Isaiah chapter 40, verse two, speak tenderly to Jerusalem, proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed. So remember, she's been in uh, Israel, Jerusalem, the people of God have been in slavery now for years. And God says, your hard service is over with and your sin has been paid for. Your sins have been paid for, that you've received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So God just didn't, God just doesn't forgive you and bless you. He gives you double. God is a God of love and mercy, and that when you turn to him and you really do it his way, he doesn't just want to bless you, he wants to bless you double what you even think you're going to get. Aren't you glad we serve a God like that? And then he says, um, the voice of one calling in the wilderness. You might have heard these words. The voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make straight a desert highway for him. Every valley will be raised up and every mountain and hill made low and the rough ground shall become level and the rugged places plain and the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all the people will see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Does anybody know who quoted this passage right here and who used it when they went into ministry? Yeah, John the Baptist, the one that went to declare Jesus was coming. So this prophecy of comfort and restoration to be God's people comes through Jesus and God had a plan all the way back, all the way back when the children of Israel disowned him. God had a plan not only to redeem them, but to bring Jesus and to restore them and give them life and a future and it's all right there. And God's saying that even though you weren't trustworthy to me, I was trustworthy to you. I was planning a way for your redemption, even when you were flying me the burden, telling me to get lost. Because God is the ultimate fixer. Now I can goof anything up. I need a fixer sometimes. A couple, it's sort of legendary in my household, the story about one day that we had some noodles put down the, the um, um, garbage disposal. Now, noodles in the garbage disposal is not a good idea, especially when you've got a, a, a piece of pipe that runs 15 feet flatly parallel. So it clogged. And it clogged. It didn't just clogged. It clogged like a cement brick. So I tried snaking. I tried liquid plumber, everything. Finally, I go over to the store and I said, do you have anything that will break this, this for me? And they said, we've got this. And they gave me a bottle. I did not think to check what the contents were, but the contents were sulfuric acid. Now, sulfuric acid, for those of you that do not yet understand, is sulfuric acid. What does acid do when you put it on things? Eats it. So it doesn't eat plastic, but everything that's metal or wood, what does it do? It eats it. So you know what I did? I poured the bottle in. If a little, come on my way, if a little will do good, a lot will do better, right? So I poured the whole bottle in. Yep, but it didn't do anything. So I, I'm sitting there and I've put some water in it and you know, the water just filled back up and I'm like, it's been two hours. I mean, come on, should have done it by now. And so I tried to, you know, I, I tried to plunge it when I tried to plunge it. You know what happened? 
know what happened? All the sulfuric acid that had sunk to the bottom got sucked back up onto my metal sink. Do you know what happens when sulfuric acid hits a metal sink? You get smells and billows of billows and billows of smoke. And smoke was pouring and everything was going crazy. And yeah, I splattered some on the, anyway, it doesn't matter. I had, to, I had to humble myself real quickly and I had to call for help and I got a fixer. A plumber came over and a plumber came over, sawed my pipe in half, drained it out, took the sulfuric acid. I don't know where, but anyway, he finally got me all clean. When he got me all cleaned out, my, my wife said to me, no more plumbing for you from now on. We just call the fixer. And a lot of us, a lot of us, we're going through life and we think if a little will do good, a lot will do better. And if I, if I drink one, 10 will make me feel better. Or if I do this, come on, y'all know what I'm saying, anybody in the room? And, and what we do is we get in a deeper problem, deeper problem, deeper problem. What God wants to do is God wants to fix it because he planned a long time ago that Jesus would come and every valley would be raised up and every mountain would be brought down and we could have a smooth life. But no, we don't want that. We want to do it our way. And God says, why don't you trust me? I am trustworthy and I got a plan. Then because he's trustworthy, we can believe his word. Now it says in, in verse six, let me just say this real quick. Um, I'm going to use a lot of scripture today. And the reason I'm going to use, we're going to read the whole chapter or you're going to read all of it. And the reason is, is because, well, several years ago, we had a consultant come to the church and the consultant came and they told me, you know, you use too much scripture. You need to just give people one or two verses and not give them all of the scripture. And I was, I was like, I don't think you understand. If you come and you listen to me talk, you ain't learned a thing. But if you come and the word of God speaks to you, that can change your world. I think we ought to read more scripture and hear less from me. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> if all I'm here to do is tell you stories, then, then you need to watch YouTube. They're better storytellers, but you know what? You come here so the Word of God can come alive in your heart. That's why we're in the house of God is to study His Word. So we're going to look at all the Word, not just part of it, because it says in verse 6, a voice cries out, call out. And I said, what shall I cry? And this is what he said to cry. All the people are like grass, and their faithfulness like flowers of the field. And the grass withers and the flowers fail because of the breath of the Lord blows on them. And surely all the people are grass. And the grass withers, in case you didn't get it the first time, he says it again. The grass withers and the flowers fail. But the word of the Lord stands forever. You're like grass that withers and fails. Come on. You're all like leaves on a tree. Anybody else have trees? And, and what happens this time of year? Those green, lively trees, uh, they all of a sudden turn different, beautiful colors, and then they turn a weird shade of brown, and they all fall into, fall into great piles around my yard. And what do I have to do? I have to go out and I have to mulch them all up and put them back into the ground so my trees can continue to grow. Why am I doing that? Why? Why? Because the tree leaves are not meant to stay. They're meant to dry up and fall off. And you're just like the grass of the field and like leaves of a tree. You are not meant to stay. You're meant to wither up one of these days and die and to be mulched up and turned back into dust so you can feed crops somewhere. That's what you're designed to do. You and I are not permanent. We are not trustworthy. But God's word stands forever and God is trustworthy. We are not, he is. You know, God's word doesn't fail. When God says it, it will happen, regardless of what you think or what you feel. When God promises, it happens. 
You know, I, I thought I would just, I don't, I don't do this a lot, but I want to share some personal stories. It was December 1965. It was a youth Christmas party. My mom had a tumor in her uterus the size of a grapefruit. She had miscarried numerous times, unable to have children. Tumor in her uterus, and she was hurting. And a 12-year-old girl in her youth group never underestimate the power of a praying teenager or preteen. 12-year-old girl in the youth group grabbed my mom, set her down on a piano bench and said, we're going to pray for you that Jesus would heal you. She laid hands on my mom and my mom felt the tumor disappear out of her body. And that was in December. I was born in October. Ten months later, you got me. In answer to a girl being prompted by the power of the Holy Spirit. In 1983, I saw a vision. I was watching Ben Hayden on TV in my living room late one Sunday night, a Presbyterian preacher from Chattanooga, Tennessee. And as I was watching him, I was fighting going into ministry and fighting submitting my life to Christ, and I saw a vision. In 1986, that day I, I submitted my life to Christ. In 1986, I went to, uh, went to Central Bible College, and I was sitting in Opal Redden's class, and God spoke to me clear as a bell, I'm calling you to pioneer a church. I've called you to start a church where there is no church. In 1996, I have the drawings in my office. In 1996, before we had even completed building this first building up here, I, I have a drawing with a multi-purpose gymnasium auditorium sitting very close to where it sits on our property right now. In 1986, I, uh, 1996, I have the drawings for this place, and we had just got the property. In 2015, God works a miracle through the EPA. The Environmental Protection Agency actually God moved heaven and earth so that they who had turned us down to build this place three times allowed us to build it. And you're sitting here today because God's word has been spoken since I know 1965 with the healing of my mother so that you're not a part of some out there thing. You're sitting here today because God has spoken and God's word is reliable even though it takes a long time to make it happen. Second of all, God declares he is powerful. God says, I am powerful. What follows next is an argument against wrong thinking. All right. So here's, here's what's funny. God wants to declare comfort to the people. You are my people. I want to comfort you. And what we think is God's just going to grab him in his arm and tell him, oh, it's all okay. But what God does in this chapter is incredibly argumentative. Incredibly, this passage is incredibly argumentative. He picks a fight with the people to comfort them. How is it that he has to pick a fight to comfort them? Because wrong thinking keeps you from experiencing the life God wants you to have. God shouldn't have had to fight with them. 
But they're thinking wrong about the situation. The culture we live in says stuff about you all the time that is a lie. And they're saying things about your character and your nature and your existence and how you ought to live and your sexuality and your money. And they're saying all kinds of things to you. And, and God, when he wants to comfort you, has to come in and confront the wrong thinking so you can accept his right thinking and therefore you can accept his goodness and his love and his comfort and his blessing. Yeah. You know, people, what happens is we're, we're people that hurt. Think about these children of Israel. They had been carried into exile. Their lives were a mess. They were hurt. They were hurt and hurt people don't think soundly. Now, my wife is one of the sweetest human beings in the world. She's nicest. She's been, oh my goodness, my wife, she's been in the pastoral ministry as long as I have. She's been a licensed minister for, for nearly 30 years. And uh, she's a preacher at heart and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, she's nice. Now, me, you say something mean to me, I might come back at you and tell you to go sit on a tack. But she, I've heard people, because church people are like sheep and sheep bite Sometimes they can be mean. And I've heard people say things to Robin that were mean, and she just stood there and smiled at him the whole time. And I'm like, dear, I, d I don't know how you did that. You know, I'm losing my cookies, and she's just being nice. And that's her nature. I tell you that to establish her nature. If you don't know her, that's her nature. She's just a sweetheart. Well, one day she's playing softball. This was back when my youngest was still a little, little one. Now, back in the day, my wife was quite a, a, a softball player. She was in the home run derby when she was a, a teenager. I mean, she was a pretty good hitter, so she gets up, and we're playing a league over in uh, Shady Drive, and she laces a ball into the outfield, and she's going around first and heading to second. I have no idea what got into her mind, but she's heading to second, and, and it was muddy because, you know, it's been raining, and, you know, it's spring in Ohio. It was mud, and there was mud everywhere, and she goes to second. For some reason, she thinks she's going to slide, so she goes like this. And you know how you slide. You put your foot down, and this foot right here, the toe got caught in the mud, and then she landed on it, and as she lands on it, moving forward with her toe in the mud, she had 13 pieces of her bones. It, sir, yeah, surgeries, all that stuff later. So she rolls over and her foot's hanging this way and she's holding her foot to keep it from flopping back down. And I mean, it was, it was just trashed. And she's laying there holding it. Some dude, some Yahoo, the guy playing second base comes over to her and says, let's just pick her up and get her off the field. And, and this sweet little lady that'll take anything looks up at her and says, touch me and you die. <laughs> I don't know where that voice came from, but, but severe pain brings out of people something that they wouldn't normally experience, right? Well, these, these children of Israel, they're in severe pain. They've been in pain. And some of you, you've gone through pain. You've had bad situations happen to you in your life. And those bad situations cause your thinking to get goofed up. And then when God comes in, he wants to comfort you and he wants to love you, but he can't love you because you won't accept it because your thinking is wrong about you and yourself and your situations. I want to tell you that God loved you before you were ever born, before you were a, the fastest swimming of the bunch. God loved you. He picked you. He called you by name. He wants you to be his child. He cares about you. He cares intimately about what you think and what you feel and how you act. And God knows when you start thinking wrong, he's going to send people to confront you with your thoughts. Hmm. So God, being the powerful God, declares, I got to fight with you. So he argues his power and authority over three entities. The first one is over naysayers. And the big question here is, who 
is smarter than God. Isaiah 40, verse 10, see the sovereign Lord comes in power. He rules with a mighty arm. See his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd and he gathers his lambs his arm. Here he is, he's coming to bring comfort. And he gathers them and he carries them close to his heart and he gently leads those that are young. And, and then he asks a question. So, lamb, a little close to me, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand or the breath of his hand marked off the heavens? What? Measured the waters in his hands. Now, this is figurative language. God didn't actually do this, but, but it's figurative language. And the picture it's painting is, you know, Pacific Ocean needs some water. God takes water and goes, that's about enough for the Pacific. That's about enough for the Atlantic. Come on, have you seen the Atlantic, the Pacific? You know how huge it is? You know how large these bodies of water are? And God measures it off in the hollow of his hands? What that's saying is this, is that you, you, come on, you, surely you know how many drops of water are in the Pacific Ocean. Surely you can measure that out. You got that under control, right? What, you don't? But God does. The truth here in poetic language is God knows exactly how much water is in the Pacific Ocean. He's the one that knows how much is in the Atlantic, and he knows what the difference is between them because God is the one that measured it out. You don't, by the way. You can't control whether it rains or not, but yet he's the one that measures out how much water there is. Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket? So God didn't literally take a basket and then it says it weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills and the balance. God didn't do that. But, but you know what he did do is he knows how much dirt is there. He's the one that knows every rock and put every rock in place by the word of his power. God is the one that knows these things. Surely you know, right? You've climbed a mountain, looked down at the top, and you know where every tree is, where every rock is. Surely you're so smart. You told God to go pound salt. Surely you know everything, right? You're, you're so smart. Science figures it out. Yeah, science can't figure out a stinking virus. You're so smart. Science will figure it out. Then why has it been a year and we ain't got nothing except promises? I'll tell you why. Because the, even 100 years ago, before electron microscopes were invented, you couldn't even see a virus. But now you can see it. Now they still don't know. Anybody, anybody listen to the news? We just don't know. How many, how many thousand times I have to be told that? Surely you're so smart, right? You got it all figured out. Wear a mask. That'll fix all the problems. I'm not against wearing a mask. I'm just simply saying we're a bunch of idiots telling God we know what we're doing. And God's up in heaven saying, yeah, you're so smart, you can't even figure out a virus. Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord or instruct the Lord as his counselor? Sure, you're smart. You tell God what to do, right? Yeah, you tell God what to do. God will listen to you, right? Yeah. I'm going to pick on you again, Jordan. Jordan over there. Jordan, surely. You know how to run the universe better than God. I'm sure you've told him. I'm sure you've told him how to do it, right? Yeah, God, would you want to run a, a universe? Would you want to live in a universe run by Jordan's brain? <laughs> I mean, we love you, Jordan, and you're awesome. And you can play a bass really mean, and you're a nice guy. But I'm going to tell you something. I do not want you running my universe. I don't even want you running my life. <laughs> no. But who can fathom the spirit of the Lord or instruct the Lord as his counselor? Surely you're smart enough. You got it all figured out, right? You tell God what to do and God's got to do it because you're smarter than him. Yeah, yeah. 
Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? Who taught him the right way? Who's it that taught him knowledge and showed the path of understanding? As a matter of fact, you're like grass. You're like a leaf. You're going to be dead and gone tomorrow. But God's been here forever. When are we going to trust him? Trust him. So this is the same line of questioning that happens in Job. You're so smart. Surely you know everything, Job. And God questioned him, and Job's like, I don't know anything. And God says, good, now I can act on your behalf now that you want to trust me rather than do it all by yourself. You know the one thing I know about self-made men? They're self-made messes. But notice all this questioning doesn't begin with God rejecting you and pushing you aside. It all starts with him gathering you into his lap to love you. Second thing is God is ruler over the nations. He, he's more powerful than the nations. Isaiah 40, 15, surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They're regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Before him, all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded to him as worthless and less than nothing. So what does God say regarding the nations over and over again? They are less than nothing. So all the nations are nothing before God. He raises up rulers. He takes them down. By the way, we sing Christmas carols. Do you realize that God, in the fullness of time, brought Jesus into this earth? The, he, he picked the perfect time, the Pax Romana, in the Roman peace, the time of peace. He brought Jesus because there was a one-world government that the gospel could be spread all around the Mediterranean basin. In peace, you could travel from one to the other and was governed by Rome. And by the way, they had one common currency and they had one common language. Oh, yeah, yeah, so Rome was awful powerful, right? No, the one common language was not Latin. The one common language is Greek because Greek was the ruler that came before. And God says, I tell you what, Rome, I'm going to raise you up to build roads and to give peace. But you know what I'm going to do, Alexander the Great and the Greeks? I'm going to give you power to tame the world and to Hellenize the world and to give it a common language. So that when Jesus shows up, he's got a common language, he's got a common road system, and they got a common message to be able to communicate with peace everywhere. And you know what, Greeks, you did your job, but before then, I'm going to give the Babylonians who give us insight and understanding and peace to the world and bring it under control that take these various things and unite them. And then Alexander the Great gave them language. And then Rome built, oh, you're getting what I'm saying. So God was raising up and putting down like a, he wanted to. He was doing what he wanted to, to create the system so that Jesus' message would go out at the perfect time because God has ruled the nations of this world from the beginning of time and nations are not powerful. God is. Thirdly of all, God rules over nature. Isaiah 40, 21. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? You have not understood since the earth was founded. He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. Those of you those of you that say, well, the Bible's just stupid because, I mean, it doesn't even agree with science. Really? It took science about 2,500 years to catch up to the Bible because everybody thought the world was flat except the Bible. Because God's Word tells you the world is round about 700 B.C., 500 B.C., somewhere in there. Huh. Wow. Anyway, that's sideline. He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. Its people are like grasshoppers. You see God looking down and going, eh, a bunch of little grasshoppers down there. I don't like the grasshopper. <laughs> what, your God's not big enough to do that? Mine is. 
Oh, that king is no longer doing what I called him to do. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, than, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither and the whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. To whom will you compare me? Who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes, look to the heavens. Who created all of these? Who, these starry hosts who brings them out one by one and calls each of them by name because every star in heaven has a name from God. Every one of you has a name from God. It is a new name and he loves you. If God knows every star in the billions of galaxies, the billions of stars in the billions of galaxies, God has a name for every one of them. I figure God can name you too. Because of his great power and his mighty strength, not one star in all of those billions of galaxies is missing. As a matter of fact, if God wants a new galaxy, I still think he's doing it. I believe God's still a creative God. He's sitting up there saying, angels, watch this one. And he takes out of his hand nothing and he skips a new galaxy across the universe. That's the reason it's spinning and that's the reason it's moving out is because God's still creating. And I believe that. And you don't have to believe that, but that, I can believe that if I want to. Matches the science. I remember when I was 12 years old, I was laying Lake Wister with my cousins. And we were laying out there 30 miles from nowhere. And there were no lights. There were no lights anywhere. And I don't know if you've ever been anywhere out in the woods where there's no lights, but there was an open sky right here by the lake. And, and we lay there on a park bench looking up and watching a meteor shower. And there were no lights to, to dim the, the brightness of the stars in the sky. And we were laying there, all of us looking up and commenting, oh, there's another one, there's another one. It was a meteor shower. It was beautiful. And I remember being about 12 years old, laying there, looking up at the sky, saying, I wonder what's beyond that star. And then when I get past that, what's on the other side? And when I get past that, what's on the other side? And when I get past that on the other side? And I asked that question, and I came to a conclusion when I was 12 years old, that there's a God who's greater than creation, and he sets creation and nature into place, and he sets it into place so that we can have awe of him. As a matter of fact, we want to show you a little video, a little video for just a second, and it's going to be up here on the screen, and, and this is just the circle of the earth, and the earth is turning, and, and this night sky, and when you look at all those stars, and the, some of them are galaxies, and you look at the rotation of the earth as it turns, I want to ask you, are you more powerful than that God? The God who controls that and puts that into place. I want to come here to the ending by talking about God is caring. God is caring. Verse 27 says, why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded by my God. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary. And his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths, they grow tired and weary. And young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. You see, when God wants to comfort you, he knows it's been a rough year on us all. He knows that times aren't really easy right now. And he wants to do this. He wants to give you his comfort. He wants to make you his people and reach down and grab you and pull you to himself and give you his comfort. And he wants to give you strength. Strength when you're tired.
I, that word, those who hope in the Lord, I, I went a little geeky on it. I started looking it up in different versions. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, it says, those who wait on the Lord. That's the King James Version I grew up in as well. The NET, New English Translation, is one of the more reliable uh, um, translations that are out there. Those who wait on the Lord. King James said the same thing. Young's literal translation says this. Those who are expecting Jehovah. They're waiting. They're like a kid on Christmas, waiting, expecting from Jehovah. Those are the ones that receive power. And then I read the Septuagint, which is the Greek Old Testament. It says, the one upomenes, upomonetes, actually, those one persevering, or upomeno is the root word, and it means those who remain under God. Remain under. All of these are words about staying where you are, staying here, staying embraced, staying, waiting, looking anxiously, hoping, waiting. And it says those who do that will mount up with wings like an eagle. So we got a picture of an eagle. This is what an eagle looks like when they're in flight. An eagle's known for its ability to soar. There's no reason for it to flap its wing because it soars on the winds. I was doing a little more research. I started geeking out on this and I, I got to look and I found this chart. This is from a study by the University of Berkeley. And, and on the left is an eagle's flight path. And it starts at the top and it reduces the bottom. He just soars down and, and he soars through life and he's going lower and lower and lower and lower. And this is how most of us live our lives. We start the day, you know, we wake up, we got some energy, you got some passion, things are going good and we just soar and our energy goes away and we get lower and lower and lower and lower. And we think we got to flap really hard to work, get back up to the heights so that we can live where God wants us to be. But that second eagle, the second eagle is an eagle. He starts at the bottom. The starting point is at the bottom, but something happens. The color of the air. What happens is the color of the air, where you see where it's red, that's called a, a thermal, a thermal cha channel. I, it's in my notes. Anyway, it's a blast of thermal air, hot, warm air coming up off the ground that gathers around. And then all of a sudden this air comes up in a thermal column and it goes up into the air. And this eagle flying along, and as he's flying along soaring, he runs into the warm air and he gets in the middle of it. And when he gets in the middle of the air, what does he do? He doesn't have to flap, he doesn't have to work, but he doesn't go out of it. He stays inside the thermal column and as he stays in, he continues to go up, 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 up because there is something lifting him under his wings. When you hang out where God is, you're lifted out of your, search, your circumstances and situations. But most of us, what we wanna do is we wanna get busy. I gotta go to work, I can't do this. I gotta go here, I gotta, and God says, if you would just hang right here with me and circle around with me for a bit, I will lift you up. You don't have to work. You don't have to worry. You don't have to struggle and strife and rule the universe and stay up all night worrying about it working out. What you need to do is you need to get in the presence of God and let him lift you up with a thermal blast of his presence and you will be lifted above your mess. That is the good news. So they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They will mount up on wings as eagles. They will run and not be weary. They will walk and not faint. Teach me, Lord, teach me, Lord, to wait. 
Would you bow your heads with me? Some of you have told God, go pound salt. You've said to him, I don't want you. And he said, okay. That's what you want. You can have it your way. But today you're hearing the voice of the Lord saying, I want to comfort you and I want to restore you. If that's you and it's your day to return to him, he's waiting to grab you in his arms and comfort you and to give you the strength and to repay double for all the stupid that we've done. If that's you and you want to receive Jesus as your Savior, you want to invite him to be your Lord today, you want to come back under his protective covering. If that's you, lift your hand up really high. I want to pray with you in this room. If that's you, yes. There are others? There are others? Yes, yes. Around this room? Yes. If you're watching online, text believe to that number right under the, me on the screen. Hey, nobody prays alone at Harvest Ridge. Could we all pray together? All of us together, out loud, with me. Come on, let's do it. Dear Jesus, I give you my life. I turn from my sin and I turn to you. I pray that you would give me your life. Take away my hard labor and receive me to yourself. Give me strength for I hope in you. Amen. If you meant that, you prayed that and you meant that from your heart, guess what? God not only forgave you, but he's going to bless you, restore you, you a hope and a future. I think what you ought to do is we ought to just take a moment or two here. I don't care if you want to sit, you want to stand, you want to kneel down at these altars, you want to kneel at your chair, I don't care. I would just like you to nobody move for a couple minutes. I'd like us to sing this song and to wait here, stay in the